Hey, it's Brienne. You guys know I love to talk about 90s and early 2000s pop culture on this podcast, but today we're bringing it back to the 80s. I have my friend Chris Clues, who loves the 80s, and he's really built a brand out of his passion for 80s pop culture. We got so caught up in our conversation that Chris forgot to mention one of his favorite leadership lessons inspired by a music icon from the 80s, and I'll let him tell you exactly who that is, but he ended up recording a clip of it and sent it to me, and after I listened to it, I realized it's the best way to kick off this episode. So here's one of Chris's many leadership lessons, and we'll dig into a lot more later on in this episode. So when we were talking about, we're talking about leadership lessons in the corporate world. And actually one of my favorites isn't from an 80s movie. It's actually from an 80s musical icon, dare I say genius. Now I know when we think about 80s music, Michael Jackson, we call him the king of pop. And that's fine. He can have that moniker. But this guy, my favorite, Prince, was the king of music. And if you really do some research on him and you see how much he did beyond just the music that you know from him that he actually performed, he wrote songs like Nothing Compares to You for Sinead O'Connor, uh, Manic Monday for the Bangles, amongst others. I believe he did a, um, he composed an orchestra at some point. So uh, obviously did Purple Rain, the movie, and uh, just huge in terms of genius musically. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about him as well because he was very private. And remember in the 80s, if you did something cool for someone, there wasn't this digital footprint. There wasn't social media. You didn't have a digital way to get it to anybody. So a lot of things that people did in the 80s, we just never heard about. And he did something really cool for a musician named Suzanne Vega. Now, she was an alt singer back in like 1987. This was, this was in 1987. And she had a song called Left of Center that got a little bit of play. And then she came out with a song called My Name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. That's as much singing as you're going to get out of me. Trust me, you'll be happy with that. However, that song really started to take off and Prince heard it. Now remember, 1987, after he's done Purple Rain, he is huge. And he was so moved by that song that he penned a handwritten note and had it delivered to Suzanne Vega. And it said, Dear Suzanne, Luca is the most compelling piece of music I've heard in a long time. There are no words to tell you all the things I feel when I hear it. I thank God for you, Prince. Pretty awesome, right? And pretty awesome handwriting, by the way. If you look up this note online, you can find it. Magical handwriting. He was using numbers for words before texting. Like he was a time traveler or something. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So Suzanne Vega gets this note. Now, how do we know that she has it? Well, when he passed away in 2016, she put it on social media to let people know the kind of guy he was off stage. But the important thing about this for me was what does this teach us for the workplace? And it's a big, huge, valuable leadership lesson. The idea that people, that rulers, when they get the stage, they, they, they keep everybody below it. Leaders share the stage. Leaders share in the success. He had gotten this huge stage of success, and here was Suzanne Vega with this song that was beginning to take off, but not a lot of people knew who she was. Everybody knew who Prince was, and he let her know, hey, I see you. I saw you doing something great, and I wanted to let you know. I take, um, he's taking the time to let her know. And how awesome is this? Do you think that gave her a boost of self-confidence? I know it did because I love Suzanne Vega, and I tweeted this out, and she responded. She liked it. She agreed with this message of leaders uh, sharing the stage, you know, and rulers keeping everybody down, how it gave her a boost of self-confidence. Now, what's even cooler about this is that we can do this today. Leaders, you can do this with your team today. Team members, you can do this with other team members. 
And it's a really good time to do it because if we think about how we're working right now, a lot of people are working virtually for the first time. They've never done it before. They're scared. They're nervous. They miss the office. They miss their friends at work. And if they get a handwritten note from their leader in their mailbox that just says, hey, I see you doing something great, and I just wanted to let you know, how awesome is that? That will boost their self-confidence. That puts people at ease as well. And we can't always give raises and bonuses and promotions, unfortunately. We wish we could. Everybody loves a raise. Everybody loves a promotion and a bonus, but we can't always do it. So what Prince taught us here is something we can do, encouragement. Encouragement doesn't cost a thing. We can all do this tomorrow. And Prince taught us that really valuable lesson. He encouraged Suzanne Vega. He boosted her self-confidence. He didn't have to do this, and he certainly didn't go look for the media to let them know that he did it. He just did it because it was the right thing to do, and he felt it. And that's the goal. That's the lesson that we get here is that leaders share the stage of success. No matter how big that stage becomes, you always find room to let people know when you see them doing something great and encourage them. Welcome to Making the Brand, the podcast where marketing and pop culture collide. I'm your host, Brianne Fleming. I can't wait to chat about brands, boy bands, and everything in between. Because brands who have a pulse on pop culture can create adoring fans of their own. All right, I am super excited for this podcast today because I'm interviewing one of my in real life friends, Chris Clues, who we kind of met on Twitter first, but we did get to meet in person. So welcome back, Chris. Happy to see you again. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you kind of, I think you uh, stalked me a little bit on Twitter. Yeah, it's no, true. Just, it's true. <laughs> no, no, it was actually really cool because you noticed that not only were we doing something similar, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, but you said, you know, we live 20 minutes from each other, which was just yeah. crazy. So cool. So I'm so happy believe, to be here. I believe I said it was fortuitous and you thought was, that was a million dollar word. <laughs> yes, I did. Fortuitous is a really good word. That's, that's a spelling bee word, I think. Yes, it is. It's yeah, it's funny the way that happened. I was researching pop culture books um, and ones that kind of relay mark, uh, pop culture to workplace culture or to marketing or have some other derivative lesson from them. And yours is the only one out there that I saw. So I'm like, let me go find this guy on Twitter. And sure enough, we live very close to each other. So um, I guess this is a good time to talk about your book really quick and then we'll get into all the good stuff. Oh yeah, sure. That'd be awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So yeah, I actually wrote two books in my series so far and I'm actually, I'm a working on a third now. So, I mean, I know we're not, you know, we're not on video here, but I, I had my two books anyways. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I have uh, a, what 80s pop culture teaches us about today's workplace. And there's two in the series. The first one is kind of, I would call like an appetizer. It's a really short book. It's only about 80 to 85 pages. It was really written as a passion project more than anything else. And then uh, once I got it out there and I realized, hey, there's pe there are people that are interested in this topic. And it, as you said, it's unique. I decided to do the second one, which is just over 210 or 215 pages, more like a book. So mm -hmm. Cliff Notes version, first book. Uh, second book is an actual, actual book. And the third one I'm working on is going to start to dive into more of um, life lessons from 80s pop culture, not just workplace lessons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that because we're very much alike in that we know that there are lessons from, from pop culture. We don't have to learn about workplace culture or marketing from 
you know, ordinary textbook examples. There's lessons all around us from the movies we love, the shows we love, musicians we love. So that was such a great way for us to kick off our friendship because I feel like we're totally on the same wavelength there. Well, I couldn't, I mean, I can't thank you enough for reaching out and connecting because uh, I was so excited when I saw that you messaged me. I mean, I went right to a couple people that were around. I'm like, can you believe this? There's somebody, not, not that she's like doing something similar that I, to what I'm doing, but she also lives around the corner. I was so excited that you took the time to reach out. And now like that we're sitting here actually having this conversation is even better. So. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot more fun projects to come oh, yeah. from the two of us. Everyone stay tuned. But, you know, you love the 80s. I am technically an 80s baby. I was born in 89, but I still need some backstory. And I need, I need you to tell me about some of these movies that maybe I haven't even seen. But why do you think that some of our favorite movies and shows and things from the 80s and really other decades, but what gives these movies such staying power makes them iconic even all these years later? It's a really good question. I, can, I think I can speak to the 80s a little bit on uh, the 80s movies on two levels. Um, mm -hmm. The first level is the 80s, there were two things that happened in the 80s with movies. One is there was kind of this explosion of creativity and the individual in the 80s. So coming through, like I, I was born in 1970. So my formative years were from 1980 to 89, 10 to 19. As I tell everybody, I pretty much tried everything for the first time in my life from 1980 to 1989, you know, all wow. the things that happened to me in my life as a kid. And there was this huge explosion of creativity in the individual. And all of a sudden we went from having just a couple of genres of music and maybe a couple of styles of movies to everything and anything. People actually had, you know, these camcorders. Now I had one as a kid. It was more like a, it was like this battery pack you had to carry on your shoulder. It lasted two hours. And but you were able to film your own stuff for the first time. And it opened up these doors to all of these people who maybe never had an opportunity to do anything with film previously. And the same thing happened in music. We had this explosion of, we call them one hit wonders. Well, that one hit wonder thing kind of started in the eighties. And it was because we had all this access through MTV that had never existed before when it back when it used to be music. Uh, we had MTV and that really allowed people to access uh, this pop culture in the music sense that they couldn't access before because as we're going to talk about later the idea that pop culture was kind of packaged for us versus the idea that the people decided what pop culture was going to be uh, yeah. so I think that's a that's a big part of it um, the the second part in terms of like the, the the movies themselves so they had to tell a great story if we go back to the 80s the landscape for a movie to generate any kind of revenue was pretty small. They had the box office, and if your movie was really good, like an E.T., for example, E.T. may run for 48 to 50 weeks in the movie theater. I mean, if, you're, if your movie is in the movie theater for four weeks now, you've got a hit on your hands. This yeah. is 48 to 50 weeks. It's in the, and the reason was because there was no other alternative for those movies to make money until the early to mid-80s when you had a, you know, your, your local video store. But even then, it would take six months after the movie was released, sometimes longer before it hit the video store. Then maybe you were lucky enough to get on HBO or Showtime or Cinemax, but that was it. There was nothing else available. They had to tell a great story. 
you had to develop your character as well. You didn't have CGI. If your story wasn't going anywhere, you couldn't just throw $50 million of special effects at your movie because you're like, oh God, this movie's terrible. Let's just throw a bunch of special effects at it and then people will go see it. There wasn't really that option. So they were forced to tell a good story and storytelling has been around, you know, since we started telling them around campfires thousands of years ago. Yeah, I mean, we talk about how they still have staying power, but it probably they probably started having to have staying power because they needed to stay interesting and in, in the theaters for such a long period of time and, and sustain that that interest. So that's really fascinating. And I, I love that you brought up creative access because I also think back to the iconic 1984 Apple commercial with when they released the Mac, and that was all about people finally having creative access and being able to create on their own terms. So that's super interesting. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. So let's, I want to learn more about your favorite movies and some of the lessons that you've taken away and just some um, moments and scenes that have stuck with you that you've mentioned in your book or that you want to share today. Yeah, so I appreciate that. I mean, there's, you know, for me, um, I always go to John Hughes as a great place to start with the 80s because if somebody were to ask me, take me, you know, put me back in a time machine and tell me what, I, how the best way for me to learn about pop culture in the 80s, I would say just absorb John Hughes. That's the first place to start. Uh, and his movies are, many of his movies are iconic and still viewed regularly today and still have an impact on society. So movies like The Breakfast Club, that was one that had a huge impact on me. I was 15 when it came out. I was the kid's age, basically, the, the kid's ages that were in the movie. Essentially, that was me. Um, I was struggling with the same things they struggled with. I was feeling the same things they were feeling. That was a really kind of um, turning point for me in my life in terms of how movies impacted me. Because before that, I was watching movies, the movies like E.T., great movie, mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't going to change my life. It wasn't going to give yeah. me direction. It Not wasn't going to... <laughs> What's that? It wasn't a coming of age movie. That's right. It was not a coming of age movie like, a, you know, a, I can't hardly wait in the late 90s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Seth Green's best role, I think. Maybe, uh -huh. you know, I don't know, maybe like Mini Me or Dr. Evil's son. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I like, can't hardly wait. So these coming of age movies. But I think, um, yeah, I would start with the John Hughes movies and say from a movie perspective. And then I would move into movies, some movies that Cameron Crowe did. Uh, if, Cam if you don't know Cameron Crowe, he was responsible for Jerry Maguire, um, but then he was also responsible for Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He wrote it. Uh, mm -hmm. Amy Heckerling, who directed Clueless in the 90s, also directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High in the 80s. That's a fun fact. And if you know that, you can see the similarities if you go back and watch both of the movies. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah we'll have to compare them. We'll have an 80s and 90s watch party. <laughs> yeah, and she, I mean, she's a great one for that because she bridged those two decades. And then Cameron Crowe was also responsible for Say Anything, which is a classic 80s movie. If you don't know the movie, you probably know the iconic image of John Cusack's character, Lloyd Dobler, holding the boombox over his head within mm -hmm. your eyes, playing, you know, that's just a classic scene. Yes. Uh, and then Cameron Crowe was also responsible in the 90s for Almost Famous, which was a great movie as well. I think it was, I'm pretty sure, if not early 2000s, but Almost yeah. Famous is a phenomenal movie as well. So Cameron Crowe is another one I would say, go back and just research Cameron Crowe. He had his hands all over the 80s as well mm. in terms of movies. And then, of course, Spielberg. I mean, oh yes, you can't forget Steven Spielberg yeah. for the movie, so... Yes, absolutely. So you noticed, and, and we were talking about this previously, how 
these movies were packaged then versus now? What are some things that you've noticed from a packaging standpoint? And can you also, no pun intended, but unpack what you mean by that? Oh yeah, sure. So I think one of the things in the eighties again was that there weren't a lot of opportunities for uh, movies and music to find new audiences and new avenues to generate revenue. It was very limited. MTV gave music a large opportunity and a much bigger channel as we talked about Mm -hmm. for smaller artists who may not have ever been discovered if not for MTV playing their music. So there, there were not a lot of channels available. So what I mean by the packaging is I feel like, and we can have a debate about this or a discussion about it. And maybe people who are listening to the podcast who aren't, who didn't grow up in the eighties might disagree or have some good things to say about how pop culture is packaged today. But I felt like in the eighties, they, a, a lot of, because of that explosion of creativity in the individual, there's a lot of stuff thrown out there. And we, the people kind of decided what we thought pop culture should be, what we thought, what, what, what we felt should be popular mm-hmm. or it was good and that they should keep building on those particular themes. Uh, I'll give you an example. We talk about the one hit wonders. We talked about this before we came on. If you go back and look at eighties music and I challenge you to type in any month, week and year in the eighties do June week of June 20th, 1985, Billboard Top 40. And you look at the diversity of music that was in the Top 40, and you look at the Top 10, you would have Willie Nelson coming from a kind of a country angle next to Motley Crue, next to Prince, next to LL Cool J, and then maybe we'll throw in a Debbie Gibson. So Uh you have all these different genres of music all in the Top 10. They were throwing everything out there and saying, you tell us what we should be playing what you should be watching, what you should be listening to. And a lot of it fell flat or for whatever reason, it became popular for a moment, but there Mm -hmm. wasn't enough to keep it going. And then other things, they ended up starting small in the early eighties and really growing through the decade. And then we still have those things around today. Great example is Vans. We talked about Vans. Jess Bacoli wore those in Fast Times at Ridgemount High in 1982. The company started in 1966. So for 16 years, vans were out there, but only people in maybe Southern California knew about them. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden they exploded and the rest is history. We all wear vans still today. Yeah. Fast forward to today and I think the packaging, basically there's so much invested in a musician, a band, a movie before it even comes out that I feel like a, a, a little bit of it is that they are dictating to us what pop culture should be and what we should like, because they're saying we've invested all this money before we even put this thing out there. They have to like it. Got to get our money back. We've got to find a way to make them like it. Yeah. And it's almost like the actors and the characters in these movies were influencers before we came up with this term for influencers as we know it today. Like we saw, you know, people were wearing those shoes or those sunglasses or this jacket and they started their trends within the movie itself. I was just reading about Risky Business and how Ray-Ban was planning to discontinue their Wayfarer collection and then Tom Cruise in 1983 wore them in Risky Business and then it said that they sold, I want to say, 360,000 pairs just because of that movie. So it's, it's crazy to think that the, of the influence that these characters have then and now that we're so influenced by individuals and celebrities. 
Yeah, and so that's a great example. Okay, that you just brought up a perfect example because if you think about that, they were getting ready to discontinue that brand. If we think about the products, and particularly with fashion, that we're that we look at today, and, and all of a sudden it catches on. Besides some brands that kind of catch on organically, like Supreme, for example, really just kind of they made that happen, right? And the people made that happen. That's a great example of how pop culture, if you weren't around in the 80s, Supreme is a great example of how pop culture, particularly fashion, grew in the 80s. The mm -hmm. people decided they liked that brand and the brand knew how to go to the people. Mm -hmm. And so your thing about the Ray-Bans is really, really interesting because most of the brands today, if they're going to put them on a celebrity, let's say that somebody's going to wear something in a movie. Well, we know about it four months ahead of time because they're promoting it already before the movie comes out that so-and-so is wearing X, Y, or Z. And mm -hmm. that didn't happen back then, to your point. Ray-Bans was re ready to discontinue the Wayfarer sunglass. Risky Business comes out, and boom, explosion. Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't, he wasn't wearing those before the movie in, in the marketing and the promotions. I mean, there wasn't, like, there wasn't this huge um, push. You might have seen it in the trailer as part of it that he had them on, but mm -hmm. there, was no, there wasn't this big push monetarily or financially to say, yeah. we got to push these out. On the contrary, mm -hmm. they were getting ready to give up. And I think that's why it worked is because it, it didn't feel like a hard sell. It felt very organic. Like these are just the sunglasses he's wearing. It didn't say, buy now, everyone go get Wayfarers. You know, it was just organically built into the movie, which is really powerful. Yeah. So tell me what, what you think. I'm curious about, because, you know, you, you, you were born in 1989. So you've seen a mm -hmm. much different part of pop culture than I have. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that back then it was like we could only turn to celebrities and, and musicians uh, as far as them influencing us, where now with Supreme and these other brands, people, just individuals who have built followings on social media who consider themselves fashion bloggers or fashion influencers or travel influencers, they've made a name for themselves just organically without this huge platform of being in a movie, a movie or having a single. So I think that's why Supreme does so well is because they empowered their audience and using user generated content and all these different ways without leaning on a big name. Whereas back in the eighties, you didn't have social media. You didn't really have, have other avenues for individuals to share what they were wearing and what they were doing. Everyone was influenced by an athlete or someone else that they saw wearing sneakers or wearing the sunglasses. Yeah. And you know, that's interesting too, because we didn't have as much access to mm -hmm. the celebrities and the athletes and the people who were influencing. We only saw maybe, you know, you, you talked about your, uh, was it Tiger Beat or Team Beat or something? Oh, Tiger, Tiger Beat. Yeah. Tiger Beat, yeah. <laughs> so... You know, <laughs> so we only had like magazines and the newspaper really. And of course we would, you know, watch them on TV or movies, but I would even go back further. You know, my mom tells me a story of when she was a teenager, she was 15, I think in 1959 and she was living overseas in Germany and she was on a military base. And there was these, there was a rumor going around that Elvis was stationed there because he went into the military uh, mm -hmm. for a short time. And there was a rumor that Elvis was, was stationed there. I think it was 50, it might've been a little earlier in the fifties. Anyway, that Elvis was stationed there. And all the girls were on a bus going to their softball game. 
And now these are girls that are anywhere from, we'll call it 12 to 16 or 17. This was really Elvis's demographic. And uh, somebody said, I, th I see Elvis, I see Elvis. And they all looked out of the bus window and there was a guy who apparently looked like Elvis coming out of his barrack. They all started crying. Like my mom said, they literally started weeping and crying because they didn't have, like today now you see pictures of people and images and video everywhere. So when you meet them, it's still kind of cool, but a little bit of the shine has been taken away because you can access them just by typing in their name. Uh -huh. You can have them in your, the palm of your hand whenever you want. Yeah. Like back in the 50s, you know, somebody like Elvis gets on, you know, shakes his hips on TV, which you weren't supposed to do. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden, he's this, this famous guy. And they were literally crying when they thought they saw him. And it turned out it wasn't him. Uh. So we've evolved. And in the 80s, we didn't really see people that much either. It was still really exciting to see them. And when they said, I wear this brand of perfume or cologne, people were like, oh, wow, that's cool. Because they were very unattainable. Mm -hmm. They're much more attainable today, I think. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I, I like to compare it to why class reunions aren't as special anymore, you don't think? Because they're, you know, we have our classmates. So we're keeping up with them in the palm of our hands, like you said. We know where everyone is, what everyone's doing, who's having babies, who's married, who's not. And, you know, it, it, it yep. does take away some of that, that shine, as you said. So I, I totally get that. And, and what a bummer that it wasn't really Elvis, but. <laughs> oh, I know. It's like, yeah, it was, I mean, she said it was like just amazing for that, that moment where they all mm -hmm. thought that's mm -hmm. him. Yeah. And if it was, she said they probably would have forced the bus driver to stop. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I mean, they would have legitimately like taken over the bus, I think. Uh, yeah. So I have one more question for you before we jump to yours. So tell oh. me, let's, let's stay on this for a second because you're talking about influencers and I have two, two, a two part question for you. One is what was the, do you recall the first thing that you bought or asked your parents to get for you for, you know, a holiday or birthday or whatever that was influenced by a celebrity or athlete or somebody wearing it. And then I'll oh. ask you the second. Part okay. Probably my earliest memory of that. Um, well, not because she was wearing it just casually, but because she was endorsing it. Britney Spears was uh, uh, involved with Skechers, and they had the Skechers four-wheelers, and she was the face of that ad. And I, of course, first of all, Skechers were huge in the early 2000s, but then to come out with the four-wheelers and to have skates, those were definitely high on my Christmas list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a throwback. That's a good question. What about for you? Well, uh, you know, I asked the question and I don't really have an answer. Um, <laughs> I would say that for me, I would go back to number one were the vans that Spicoli wore in Fast Times. I wasn't supposed to see that movie, by the way, because it was a, a pretty like rated R for a good reason at the time and uh, for several good reasons. But I mm -hmm. snuck in. We used to buy tickets for other movies and then sneak into the other one. And that was back when they had ushers. So you would have somebody, if people were talking, the usher would walk down the aisle with a flashlight and tell them to be quiet or they'd have to leave the show. Yeah. And they would walk around looking for young, younger kids. We would just sit in the back and hide. So I was able mm -hmm. to see the movie and the vans were like really jumped out of me. And so I got a pair of checkerboard vans. I put that, that picture in my presentations when I talk about how to become an 80s pop culture expert and you kind of have to dress like it. And I have a picture when I was like 12 wearing those checkerboard vans. It's funny that both of us are the product that we chose were shoes because another example of shoes when I was doing some research and I, I'm kind of upset I didn't think of it myself because it's it's right there but 
Carrie Bradshaw, Sarah Jessica Parker in, in Sex and the City, she was known for shoes and designer brands, um, particularly Manolo Blahniks, which are this, these really expensive uh, shoes. And in fact, Big actually proposes to her instead of with a ring, he gets her shoes. <laughs> and that's how he proposes is with these, these really high fashion shoes and Jimmy Choo's. And the way that she's influenced people today or brides today is now on your wedding day, everyone wants a, a pair of Manolo Blahniks or Jimmy Choo's, even if you're not, you know, you're not wearing them on a regular basis. Cause like, like I said, they're very expensive for your wedding day. They become like such a hot ticket item to at least get your Manolo's for your big day. So shoes in particular seem to be, you know, a, a hot item in movies and pop culture. That, I guess that's probably why, I mean, I never got married. That's probably why, because <laughs> I couldn't get the pair of shoes that I wanted. I, I, I have no idea. Like, I only thing I know about shoes are basically Vans, and then mm -hmm. anything I might be wearing to, you know, for sports. But um, there is, like, a, what the brands that you just mentioned, mentioned, is that one of them that has, like, the red bottoms? The red bottoms? No. Those? those are another huge pop culture, um, you know, iconic pair of shoes, but I also have done a podcast on them. They're called Christian Louboutins. That's it. Okay. I knew yes. there was a name, but I didn't want to mispronounce it. So yes. Yeah. They're a big deal. And there's actually this book that I would recommend called Contagious by Jonah Berger. And he has a whole chapter about why those shoes are so successful. And he compares it to this concept that he coined called built to show, built to grow. So the fact that, that they all have that signature red bottom, you know, you start seeing them around and they, he, the designer found a way to make them very visible to other people instead of just making them plain. You know, you, you see that on the street, you see celebrities wearing them, then you start to Google them and it just, it takes off from there. So. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I have a lot of different pairs of Vans and uh -huh. all kinds of really cool designs, but yeah. No, Vans are iconic too. And I, um, I mean, just thinking even in sports with, you know, the new pair of Jordans coming out or, you know, every athlete having their own pair. Colin Kaepernick, I think, just came out with a pair. Like, it, it's always, you're always tying celebrities and athletes to shoes also. So there's a lot of potential there. So let's talk about, you know, you said you're a huge fan of Vans. How, how can companies build a tribe of loyal fans, either across, genera across generations or just, you know, in the moment? What takes someone from just being a customer to a super fan, in your opinion? So that's a really good question. And I, I thought, I, I think um, there's, a, again, a couple of answers to this question. The mm. first is I'm going to go back to a lesson from an 80s movie. Um, and the 80s movie is one that I think when we talk about iconic movies, I think this is one that will be around well after we're gone um, as the earth and the sun move closer together. Um, <laughs> it'll still be one that it's still be one that they're watching that everybody's watching. And that's the princess bride. Um, so in the princess bride, did you see it? No, my husband's mad at me for it. He's been oh, trying wow. to, okay. to watch it. For you years. need to watch the princess bride. Yeah, I, know. Now, I mean, I don't know if you know, but like on Instagram or on social media in general, they did the, the whole uh, Josh Gad did the whole like Princess Bride thing. I think it was Josh Gad did the whole Princess Bride thing where they all the actors did and some other people who weren't in it took on the characters mm -hmm. and did them from their homes and from their backyards and everything and they spliced it together and created the Princess Bride movie from home. Yeah. Is that yeah. the one with Andre the Giant? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Andre the Giant. You know, anybody <laughs> want a peanut? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like a quote, totally quotable movie and it's a fantastic movie. I had a chance to meet Carrie Oles, who was the, um, Wesley, um, the main character in the princess bride at, at mm-hmm. a, then I spoke at, and he was really, really nice guy. Uh, but Igneo Montoya, who is, you know, the other main character in the, the princess bride. And he is searching for the six fingered man who killed his father. And he's consistently saying throughout the movie, my name is Igneo. Every, everybody he meets, he says, hello, my name is Igneo Montoya. You kill my father, prepare to die. This is what he says. And then he looks at people's six fingers on their hand. So I translated that and I was like, you know, what, one really great thing about him is that you always knew what you were getting when you saw him and when you met him. Mm-hmm. He was bold, he was honest, and he was transparent. And I think those are three things that a brand can do to grow their audience and keep their audience. Mm-hmm. Grow your audience by being bold and then keep your audience by being honest and transparent with them. Mm. We're smart. We're smart. You know, consumers are smart and we pay attention and you have to know your audience. You know, there's another example of and knowing your audience from Christmas vacation. If you ever saw that yes. <laughs> with Clark Griswold, where he loses his ever loving mind because he got the jelly of the month club instead of mm-hmm. the money for his swimming pool that he already paid for. And he loses his mind. He says, I want my boss brought from his slumber with all the other rich people on Melody Lane right here, right now with a big bow wrapped around him. And cousin Eddie, who's not that bright, but is very loyal, decides mm-hmm. that he is going to go do that. And he actually bring, kidnaps his boss and brings him back. And that's clearly not what Clark Griswold wanted, but cousin Eddie interpreted it like, hey, this is what he wants, I'm gonna go do it. That's a big, that's a big thing about knowing your audience and mm-hmm. understanding the message you're putting out there and how they're going to interpret it. Mm-hmm. And that some people in your audience may interpret your message a little bit differently and you've gotta be prepared for those different interpretations and how to handle them. So, yeah, yeah I mean, being, being honest and transparent, you know, bold to grow your audience and honest and transparent with your audience and make sure that you know them enough mm-hmm. that you're prepared for the, the, the answers that come back to, the, to, the, you know, to your messages or the questions that come back to your messages. Yeah, I like that. It's like being bold is that initial step you take to attract people to you. And then once you have their attention, you nurture them and be honest and kind of bring them in your, your yep. circle of trust, if you will, a little meet the parents reference that way. Yeah, the but, circle of trust. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Or the trust tree, as, yeah. he, as he says in old school, you know, or I thought we were in the trust tree. Um, so, <laughs> So yeah, I, I, I think that that's a big thing that, that a lot of big brands somehow they struggle with mm-hmm. this honesty and transparency. And I've never really understood that and know your audience, right? I mean, yes. know who you're talking to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. My, cl- my classes are probably really sick of me saying know your audience. <laughs> it seems like common sense, but so many brands miss it. They don't know their audience because they, they live in bubbles just like we do. Well, I mean, unfortunately, so many of us live in bubbles in general, but brands live in bubbles as well. You know, if your brand is located, if you're, if you're located in a certain area, maybe you have certain perceptions, right? And you stay in your little bubble and you just mm-hmm. kind of talk back and forth to each other. And mm-hmm. so you never really go outside of it to say, well, wait a minute, what, what are our customers thinking here or there and the, all these different places? Because we have all these different people who buy our product and we need to understand mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and that's why I love pop culture because I'm always encouraging brands to get involved with pop culture because that's really what your audience loves. You know, that's why, you know, there's this cosmetics brand that I like called Tarte and they tweet every Monday night. Uh, they live tweet during The Bachelor 
And, you know, that's just knowing their audience. It's all these millennial and kind of Gen Z women watching the show. And, you know, on paper, it might not seem like the most academic strategy, but it's just them knowing their audience. And this is where we need to show up and just illustrate that, that we're just like them. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really, I, I, I mean, I don't know that brand obviously, but, (laughs) um, but the idea that they've done that is really smart because you're right. Like if you go with pop, that's, what's great about pop culture is that it really does um, encompass everyone. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you see the people who are, there are, I, I think there are certain brands that obviously like a tart may attract more women than men. I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but it would seem like they probably do where, you know, another brand may attract more men than women, but ultimately mm-hmm. pop culture is designed for everyone. You go to a movie and you watch a movie like a, a superhero, any, pick a superhero movie, pick a Marvel movie, whatever, go, go to the movie theater and see who's in there. Yeah. It's everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, you name the demographic, and it is going to be in that movie theater with you watching that movie, and it ties us all together, which is really, really awesome. Which is why I think the idea of honesty and transparency is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you asked about employees too, like I think how you yes. yeah, because a lot of your lessons. I mean, I like to talk about, and you do too, but relating pop culture to marketing. But the essence of your books is also about workplace culture. So I, I was curious about you know, what you would tell HR managers or leaders or just any manager really and how to, how to build trust with their employees and team members. So with the workplace lessons, I, I have a, several of them when it comes to obviously workplace culture, but two that I would kind of pick out and say these are ones that I think have a big impact and they're really important for every workplace culture. Um, Spicoli and Fast Times at Ridgemount High He's talking to Mr. Hand when he's trying to pass his American history class. And he says, you know, um, that the whole thing about how, well, we, we left this England place. And if we don't get some cool rules, well, we'll just be bogus too. And he's talking about this idea of, you know, leaving England and coming to the U.S. And then we have to create some cool rules or we'll just be bogus too. And that's about the idea about making your workplace the coolest place to work. Because ultimately, if you don't create a really awesome environment for your employees, they're going to find another place that's going to provide that for them. And that's so important in today's workplace because I've, I worked through several decades and I watched the evolution happen. I watched all the positive things that begin to happen in the workplace and how it was so important to create this culture and this environment. It wasn't enough just to give somebody a nice paycheck. It wasn't enough just to give them, you know, some decent benefits. You had to do more. You had to create an environment that people felt comfortable in. You had to create an environment where they could feel like they could grow. You had to create an environment where they felt like if I do a really good job, they're going to promote me from within. They're not going to just like go pluck somebody off the street and put them in a position above me. And then where am I supposed to go? What's, where's the loyalty? You know, Mm -hmm. I watched that kind of stuff evolve. And I think that's a really important thing for, it sounds simple on the surface. Well, of course I'd make my workplace the coolest. Well, are you really doing that? Because cool means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Yeah. I I would love for you to, I mean, you already kind of did, but I feel like when I hear cool workplace, I picture (laughs) corporations just throwing a ping pong table in the corner and saying, oh, we're cool now. But like you were saying, I mean, we we want opportunities to be promoted. We want autonomy. So can you elaborate a little bit more on how you would define what makes a workplace cool? And is it just kind of tchotchkes and rewards or what, what more is there? 
I think I would go back to the, I think you start with the, the whole idea that Igneo Montoya from Princess Bride, be bold, mm-hmm. be honest, and be transparent with yeah. your employees as well. Yeah. You know, this, this idea that we're going to hide things from the employees because we don't want them to know, it's, it's crazy because there's another lesson in there from the Lost Boys, which if you haven't seen that, it's a great vampire movie from the 80s. Okay. Highly, highly recommend. It is nothing like Twilight, by the way. Just going to throw it out there. It's uh-huh. not, not like Twilight. Uh, it's a fantastic movie. Kiefer Sutherland plays the head vampire, and he's, it's just a great movie. But I want to get to the point, my point here, that for so long, companies protected things from employees where they were like, we don't need the employees to know this, we don't need to know that. That idea of not being transparent is a really bad idea, in my opinion, for a number of reasons. But one is in The Lost Boys, the story basically, just in a nutshell, the plot, there's these two kids that work in their parents' comic book store on the boardwalk. Not, the, not two kids you would look at or two people you'd look at and say, yeah, they could save the world. They don't have that look, right? They're not the, what we would classify as the problem solver. They don't have Liam Neeson's special uh, set of skills, right? <laughs> yeah. like, and they don't look like Rambo or you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Ter- Terminator. They just don't have they don't look like the problem solver, but in actuality, they're the ones who solve the problem. They see it first, they push through it, and they're like, we have got to solve this problem. And the problem, of course, is there's a vampire infestation in their town. But anyway, they're the ones who see it and say, we've got to solve this problem. And they're the ones that ultimately solve it. They don't look like problem solvers. And this idea that that problem solvers don't come in a one-size-fits-all package. And that's for your corporation as well. Just because somebody has the title doesn't mean that they're the best problem solver. Just because they have 30 years of experience doesn't mean that they're the best problem solver. Our problem solvers come in all different types of packages. And if you're hiding things from your employees, if you're hiding things from the company, you know, because you think that that's in their best interest, or you think that that's going to help the company, maybe letting them know what's going on will help you solve your problem because somebody will step up that you didn't recognize and be like, I know how to solve that. And I think that's another part of the coolest work. Yeah, I like that. Again, you're not mentioning pool tables or snack machines. You know, it's it's oh. <laughs> at the root of the of the issue. I I remember when we first met on Twitter. One of the things I sent you because I know you love to talk about workplace culture. I sent you an article about uh, that scene in Friends when Chandler is handcuffed to uh, Rachel's boss's desk, and I said that was like a metaphor for workplace culture, and and he was trying to escape, and we don't want to be chained to a desk like we we want flexibility we want autonomy we want communication we want to feel like we're part of that conversation and the same goes for brands when they're communicating with their audience like you want your audience to feel involved you share behind the scenes content all these different things that bring your audience closer and yet i feel like sometimes corporations forget to do that with their own teams like involve them as much as possible make them part of the process communicate clearly don't just go behind closed doors with a team of executives and kind of forget to get feedback from your your employees and your audience and make decisions collectively totally i i totally agree and i'm so glad to hear you say that because you know obviously i were we were separated by 19 years which is two <laughs> decades and so I was actually starting my career, you know, well, right, you were maybe like three or four years old, I don't know. So to hear you say that, that to hear you say that and to reinforce it, and mm-hmm. to say that's important to somebody who, in your generation, that's awesome for me to hear because as somebody who 
was in a little bit in a different generation where things were valued differently in the mm -hmm. workplace. I always felt like we were missing that. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that really starting to come around. And it goes to another thing about, um, well, there's a movie, Weird Science, from the 80s, John Hughes mm -hmm. movie. If you see the post movie poster, you're going to think one thing. I, I can assure you that when you get into the movie, you see something totally different. Mm -hmm. And there is a great line by Lisa, the, the, um, the main character in Weird Science, and she says to the two boys, because they're Anthony Michael Hall and uh, Elon Mike, Michael Smith, I think was the other guy. He never really, Mitchell Smith, he never really did much, but Anthony Michael Hall did quite a bit. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to be cool for the cool kids because they're kind of like the one, the outcasts. And the cool guys, one of them is Robert Downey Jr. when he was really, really young, has a small part in the movie. And they, these guys, the, guy, the cool guys want them to do something for them. And so they try to do it and everything goes haywire. And she says to them, like, you had to be big shots, didn't you? Like, when are you going to realize that people will like you for who you are, not for what you can give them? And mm. that is a huge, in my opinion, a huge leadership lesson about being a who you are leader, not a what you can give them leader. Because if, you can, if I can give you something as my employee, somebody could come along and give you something better. But if I am a who you are leader, if people respond to my leadership because of how I treat them, that I treat them with respect. There's a re mutual respect street road going back and forth and they yeah. enjoy being in the environment because it's a cool place to work. And we've got all of these things going for us. When that person comes along who says, here, I can give you something better. I can give you this what? They start to think about, but can they give me the who? Mm -hmm. And I've made that mistake just like anybody. I left a job because there was a higher paying job, but I didn't look at the environment and the culture. Yeah. And it turned out it was just a what they could give me culture, not a who they were culture. And I wanted to go back to my place and I couldn't go back. I couldn't get back in. I realized how important that who you are as a company and as a leader and as a culture is, is just as important as what you can give them. But look at you now. You're sharing what you've learned even from that experience and hopefully changing a lot of other workplaces. We're seeing, you know, just a huge uh, level of empathy from corporations right now with the pandemic and people and uh, corporations being more flexible and more understanding than ever before. So I think a lot of change is being made, a lot of positive change. So your book is just one of the pieces that is influencing that. Well, I appreciate that. Chris, this was so fun. Is there anything else you want to add? Wow. I, I mean, I had an absolute blast and I'm trying to think if there was anything that we missed. I think the only thing I really wanted to just um, quickly talk about if we could, if we haven't gone over yeah. or anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you talked about, uh, we've talked in the past about like how this works across generations and we touched on it a yeah. little bit earlier, but one of the really interesting things for me, um, and I'm going to again use an eighties example because that's who I am. I've got the Spicoli <laughs> shirt on right now. People can't see that, but I got my Spicoli <laughs> shirt on. So, uh, if, if I take today and I say, how, let's compare today to back when I was growing up. If I wanted to find out, I was 13 years old and I would, wanted to know who Led Zeppelin was, you know, mm -hmm. some music band. The only way I could find out about them is I had to walk up to the dude that had the Camaro with the jeans jacket on and the Led Zeppelin patch and go mm -hmm. ask that guy, what is Led Zeppelin? Tell me about what, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what that guy's going to do. He might beat me up. I don't know. Like, you know, he's got the Camaro. He's like Billy Madison, right? He's like the cool guy. And yeah. so um, 
I, I, we had to go physically ask somebody or we had to ask our parents, which we were never going to do. Who asked our parents at 13 <laughs> about pop culture? I mean, so now it's different. We talk about across generations. How do people find out today? Stranger Things is a great example. And I'm going to go deeper than just the fact that it, it's on Netflix. It's a popular show. It talks about the 80s. It has all these 80s influences. It's set in the 80s. I'm going to go past that a little bit. Let's say that you're a high school kid and you're fascinated by Stranger Things. You love the show. And you're watching it. And at one point, you hear a song. And that song is by the Psychedelic Furs. Okay? And the song, let's say the song is Pretty in Pink. I think there was a Psychedelic Furs song on Stranger Things. It probably wasn't Pretty in Pink, but let's just say that it was. Mm-hmm. And you go on and you say, oh, man, I really like that. I'm going to go look that up. You go look up Psychedelic Furs, Pretty in Pink. Well, what happens when you do that? It says, oh, that song came out in 1985, 1985, I think. So, like that, yeah. Around the time the movie Pretty in Pink came out. And it says, oh, you like the Psychedelic Furs? Well, you might like The Cure and The Smiths. And it starts Joy Division and New Order and all of these bands. And you're, all of a sudden, you are exposed to this entire catalog of 80s movies. I mean, 80s music. But it goes beyond that. Then it says, oh, by the way, did you know that Pretty in Pink is actually a movie? And did you know that that, that movie had Molly Ringwald? And did you know that that movie was directed and written by John Hughes? And did you know that John Hughes did The Breakfast Club and 16 Candles and Weird Science and Plane Trains, Automobiles and Home Alone and Vacation and all of these things? And then did you know that Molly Ringwald was in all of these movies? <laughs> you get all this happened from yeah. one search. Mm-hmm. Psychedelic mm-hmm. Furs, Pretty in Pink. And now yeah. that 15, 16, 17-year-old kid is exposed to this library of 80s pop culture Yeah. without ever having to ask anybody. Yeah. Wow. I never thought of it that way. Amazing. It's amazing. And I think that's why 80s pop culture continues to resonate. I think that's why 90s pop culture will continue to resonate because you can go down that rabbit hole just by in the palm of your hand, just like we talked about. So true. It's like a whole chain reaction. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's how I, I think across generations, we don't have to like share stories around a campfire anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Campfire is research. Yeah, it's right there for us. So you don't true. have to. You don't have to buy one. You know, one one of the encyclopedias. You don't have to buy. <laughs> yeah, one, yeah. One of That's all you have the money for, like Joey. <laughs> I'll take the V. Yeah. <laughs> the Vesuvius. <laughs> Did you know Vesuvius is a volcano? Oh gosh. Yeah. Vietnam War. Those. So Vietnam funny. War. They start talking about the Korean War. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, you get so pissed. Oh, it's the best. Well, this was a blast. Here's to never growing up, (laughs) staying into our decades that we love, and we'll have to get together soon. Hopefully this pandemic will die down and we can can cheers to that. Yeah, yeah. And just like they said in The Breakfast Club, when Allison and Bender are talking and Allison says, uh, you know, when when you grow old, your heart dies. Uh And Bender says, so who cares? And she says, I care. Yeah. So yeah, we never want to grow old. Never want to see your heart die. Not us. We'll we'll keep each other young. (laughs) Yeah. And so can I, do you mind if I just uh, mention like where people can find me? Yeah. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Which I love your Twitter handle. I don't know how you snagged that one, but go for it. (laughs) Yeah. So I I got very lucky there. Yeah. Uh, For some reason, 80s pop culture was available. I can't Mm -hmm. believe it. Again, if somebody is, if somebody has, you know, a check they want to write and buy it, I'd be open to it. <laughs> Just like we did back in the day with uh, URLs. Uh, but yeah. no, 80s pop culture. So I'm at 80s pop culture on Twitter. I am uh, Chris Clues 80s, 80s on Instagram. 
And then obviously Facebook and LinkedIn, I'm just Chris Clues, C-L-E-W-S. My website is chrisclues.com, C-R-A-C-H-R-I-S-C-L-E-W-S. You can spell my name right there. Yeah. Uh, chrisclues.com. And that has information on everything about me, um, a lot of videos, a lot of podcasts like this one. Uh, also, how to get a hold of me for speaking. So I'm doing a lot of virtual speaking now. Um, I spoke to Visa recently at their learning, learning festival, which was really awesome. I have a really exciting one to announce soon, but I can't yet. So I'm doing a lot of virtual speaking. Um, and I am starting to get booked for next spring physically, which is a really healthy sign. Yeah. In a lot of ways, healthy in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, so uh, that's how you can find me at chrisclues.com. And, um, Perfect. And I'll have everything linked too, but, but what, a, what a fun way to just spice up and, and bring everyone back in the office is to have you come and, and speak instead of just talking about boring team building stuff. We can talk about movies and music. So yeah. And team building. Yeah. And yes. you'll, appreci you'll appreciate this. And maybe, maybe what you told me, what was the brand that you mentioned earlier? The makeup brand that does the, uh, Art. okay. So I may have to like get involved in that conversation on a Monday night sometime because <laughs> I'm actually getting ready to publish a short story um, that's totally different from anything I've ever done on Kindle called uh, Coffee, Love, and a Cross-Country Road Trip. It's a four-chapter story. It's about, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages. And it's about someone that I met back on January 4th of 2020 for a cup of coffee and everything that's happened in what I call kind of Mad Max and the toilet paper apocalypse which is <laughs> thing here. And so it's a romance and it's written from a guy's point of view, which is very different. I think Notting Hill might be the only one that did that. Yeah. <laughs> another great movie. Yeah. Another great movie. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Yes. So thank you so much for the megaphone. I appreciate it. Of I'm course. so glad we met. Yes. And, we'll keep yeah. this going. This was so fun as always. And I've got some homework. I have some movies I need to watch clearly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have some, uh, I have some, probably have some influencers and pop culture icons to look up myself. Yeah, and I know what you're going to be doing on Monday nights now, just That's tweeting right. with makeup gotta, brands. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be back in the background. I'm going to be spying first yeah. just to see what's going on. <laughs> love it, love it. Well, Chris, thank you again. And um, I know we'll be in touch soon. We'll have another project or something to work on together. That's awesome. Yep, thank you. Stay rad, everybody. Thanks, guys. If you're a fan of this podcast, be sure to subscribe, or better yet, leave a review. You can also join my Twitter chat at hashtag popchat for weekly pop culture discussions you can actually learn from. If you have an idea for an episode, shoot me a DM at Brianne2K. As always, thanks for listening.